Hey, this is Phil, a.k.a. Corinne. And I'm Alex Berg, and you're listening to the I'm I'm from from Driftwood Driftwood Podcast. A quick favor to ask our listeners before jumping into today's episode. Take a few seconds to leave a five-star rating on the I'm from Driftwood Podcast. More ratings and reviews help the podcast appear in recommendations, which means more people who need to hear all these queer and trans stories will be able to find them more easily. It just takes a few seconds and would make a big difference. All right, now on to today's episode. On today's show, we hear two stories from queer elected officials. Up first, we have Richie. I'm Richie Torres, and I'm from Bronx, New York. I remember the first time when I went to the village and saw two men hold hands together. I was shocked because you would never in the Bronx, at least in in my experience of the Bronx, would never see two men holding hands, showing affection in in the projects. but I saw it in the village and it was, it was unremarkable there. I would often experience LGBT romance vicariously through the media. Right? The only time I ever saw a movie in the theaters twice was Brokeback Mountain because it was such a powerful portrayal of love between two men. I was 16 years old. Uh, either sophomore or junior in Lehman High School. It was a school that had 5,000 in a school that was designed for no more than 2,000. So it was crowded, it was cramped, it was teeming. And I was active in extracurricular programs. I was a member of the law team, the debate team. So there was a rumor circulating that my debate coach was gay. And so I decided to look up his profile on MySpace before Facebook controlled the world. And I came to discover that he was gay. He identified as gay on his profile. And I was so excited and fascinated because there were I had no family, no friends, no neighbors who were openly LGBT. I remember going to him after class when I could speak to him privately. And, and then I was spontaneously prompted to come out, and he was shocked. He was left speechless. So he gave me no immediate response, but then we had a a longer conversation about it a few days later. So he he was supportive, as as, as I expect he would be. And I think he was shocked to learn that I was gay. And so that was the very first moment in my life when I acknowledged my sexuality to someone else. So the second moment came when there was a form in Lehman High School on the definition of marriage, I don't know why there was a form on the definition of marriage. And I was assigned to argue in favor of marriage equality. And for whatever reason, I had a Jim McGreevy moment. I announced in an auditorium full of high school students that I'm a gay American. (laughs) Uh, And so far more people knew about my sexuality than, than before. So after my Jim McGreevy moment, I was only out to a select set of people, like co-workers when I was working in the city council. Um, I never went on dates. I had no relationships. I acknowledged that I was gay to myself and to a select set of people, but I never, I was not living the life of a, of a truly openly gay man. Um, and then came the decision to run 
for public office. And I was one of nine candidates in a hotly contested race. I was intent on winning. And your concern, you know, when you're a candidate, you're concerned you're one controversy away from derailing your candidacy. And so I was anxious about doing anything that could derail my chances of, of winning. And an openly LGBT candidate never won public office in the Bronx before. But then one day I received a call from a reporter inquiring about my positions on LGBT issues on marriage equality. And then he asked whether there were, did I have people in my life who were LGBT who shaped my views on the LGBT community? And I said, well, I'm a member of the LGBT community. Um, I'm openly gay. And that was the moment when I decided I'm an openly gay elected official. I'm going to run as an openly gay elected official, and I'm going to win. And I did. It was a question of integrity. Like, I'm asking, you know, I'm asking residents who have been failed by their elected officials to trust me. Right? And how can I be trusted if I'm telling lies about something as basic as my sexual identity? And I will tell you, the process of coming out has taught me an ethic of radical authenticity. Not only am I open about my sexuality, I'm open about every aspect of my life. I speak openly about my story of growing up in public housing and struggling with poverty or grappling with depression to the point of contemplating suicide. Uh, my experience as an LGBT person has made me far more authentic as an elected official than I otherwise would be. I've been able to make a powerful difference, but the most important difference that I've made is serving as a role model, is sending a clear message that there's nothing wrong with being gay. You should feel no shame, and you should go through the same romantic experiences that your peers go through, because you deserve nothing less. And, and that's what I wish I had for myself. So I, I believe in the normalizing power of my own visibility so that young people can grow up normally, without shame, with pride, with visibility. You know, it's interesting in this story to watch someone change in the blink of an eye. I mean, basically in the blink of an eye, his life changed, right? Whereas he was living as a gay man, but not really out. He had a moment of reckoning where this you know, reporter asks a question and he knew that it's like, okay, what am I going to do? You know, it's, it's interesting when you watch people come to this place in their lives where they have to take road A or take road B. And depending on what they do, it really impacts their lives in such a massive way. And it was interesting to watch him just decide, okay, this is the moment. This is the moment where I step up. This is the moment right, where I own this. I mean, I would imagine him as a representative and him as an official was always kind of had this whole idea that he wanted to be transparent. He had to act on what that meant, right? He had to act on what that really meant to be transparent and decide, hey, if I am going to present myself and have these people trust me, then guess what? I have to bring all of me to this job. Yeah, that's such a good point. And then the other thing too, is that it was cool to hear his evolution over time because you hear about how he's really like going through these different stages in life of never ever even seeing gay people interacting with each other publicly to then having to make this really pivotal decision about living publicly and also not being so sure about it to now he's in every single article that you read about this new class of LGBTQ lawmakers, his name is there. And 
it's interesting, I guess, one of those things when you become a politician is that these aspects of your identity become so defining. And so I have an appreciation for why it can be such a tricky thing to balance for people. In your heart of hearts, you may want to be out, but then you're also having to make all these decisions about what it means to live so publicly and the kind of blowback that you'll face for that. So I guess it's tricky, but I, I definitely think that it would make you more honest. And I feel like if I were a constituent, it, it would be important to me to have someone who would be out, especially when you are in a governing body that is dealing with issues that have to do with LGBTQ people. I feel like it's so important to have out LGBTQ lawmakers in Congress because they're making these really crucial decisions about passing the Equality Act or other legislation that dictates our lives. It just reminds me of like going back to like the 90s and like Ellen, like when Ellen first came out and how clever they were with like how that happened. And like this whole idea of like, oh my God, what's gonna happen? Like if I do this, yeah, my life's going to change. And is it going to change for the, for the worse? You know, is this going to ruin my career? Am I going to stop my career? just as things are starting to bloom for me. You know, there was a time when it was absolutely unfathomable that anyone could be an out LGBTQ person and run for office. And still, when you look at the upper echelons of office, of course, the higher up in office you get, the more homogenous it becomes of white cis straight men occupying those spaces. But even just to think about someone like Pete Buttigieg being the transportation secretary, being an out gay man and how during the campaign in 2019, 2020, then into 2021 and now 2022, it's still like very notable that there is one out gay person in that position. Also, I don't want to erase, there are some uh, high-ranking trans officials as well in the Biden administration, and I don't want to erase anyone, but it just, it still feels like, you know, we've come so far and that at one time it was improbable that you could be an out LGBTQ elected official. And yet I think as you start to look at these higher and higher echelons, it's still, there's still very few and far between. The importance of coming out, we talk about visibility all the time in this podcast, the importance of coming out as an LGBTQ official is important, not just for the people around you in society and, and other, you know, younger queer people, but also for other people who want to run for office, right? They need to see that that's a thing that can be done. And I think we we have made some strides there, but you're right. I mean, as the higher up you go, the fewer queer people. So it's like, we've had some wins, but we're still waiting for some wins in the higher ranks. Our next story comes from Anise Parker, the former mayor of Houston, Texas. I knew that I was gay and began to put a name to it when I was 12. Didn't come out till I was 15. I fell in love with a girl who was a year older than I, 16. She started a torrid relationship. I mean, I it was just first love, just magnetic. Had to be around each other all the time. Uh, unfortunately, her mother walked in on us when we were kissing and uh, decreed that we could never see each other again and really uh, kind of some real vicious comments. And so we couldn't handle that. We had to be together. So we found ways to sneak around to see each other. We would um, double date or each get dates with guys, have them take us to the movies, and then we'd kind of run into each other so we could sit together. I mean, all sorts of things, anything to be together. So for months and months, we had this kind of double life going on. But I would also, I would spend evenings just sitting in the dark, staring up at her window, hours and hours at a time. Absolutely miserable. Uh, couldn't make me be 15 again for anything in the world. Somewhere between my junior and senior year in college, uh, living with my parents, I had not done that since I left home to go to college, but I stayed with them 
for the summer, and um, a younger woman from from the university that I'd been involved with and I, we you know, carried on our relationship by phone, which of course this is before cell phones, and I was racking up these long distance phone bills that was having a very hard time explaining to my parents why they why they were there. And we went back to uh, to school in the fall, and uh, her mother went to the uh, uh, university and attempted to have me expelled. I actually attempted to have both of us expelled uh, because we were in a relationship with each other. And fortunately for me, they explained to her that policies had changed, times had changed, that that might have been something that would have been done in the past, but they didn't do that anymore. Now they did call us in and inquire as individually as to whether we were doing okay in school, did we have any problems, did we need any psychological counseling, and we both said no, absolutely terrified. Uh, but the university dropped it. Now, a week or so later, I received uh, a letter in the mail from my mother, and she had included a letter from my girlfriend's mother to, to her, and uh, it started, it was like eight pages, and it started out, Last year at Rice, your daughter and my daughter had a big love affair and it went on and on about how she'd gone to the university and the university didn't care and uh, that uh, my parents needed to, to uh, they probably ought to pull me out of school and they needed to make me uh, stay away from her daughter and my mother just put it back in the envelope it came in and forwarded it to me. I guess it made her mother uh, feel that I had somehow corrupted her daughter and if I got out of the picture it would be okay again. Uh, but uh, no, her daughter's still gay after all these years. It doesn't just turn on and just off. Just doesn't just turn on and off, no. I definitely feel like Anise kind of had a little bit of a sense of humor about everything. But as I was listening to this, I was like, this is actually so terrible. I can't even imagine, you know, you're in school, you've been hiding this thing the whole time. And there's actually these like really horrible consequences that you're being pulled into the administration's office at risk of getting kicked out of school and outed to your entire family because of your girlfriend's mom basically writing this letter. And it was pretty clear that the girlfriend's mom thought that if a niece was removed from the equation, that everything would shift, right? This, this girl would then magically become straight and not have any sort of like feelings toward a niece. And it was, everything would just go back to the way it was. But the truth of the matter is, is like, that car was already rolling down the street. Okay, so, you know, <laughs> we're not gonna have a reversal all of a sudden it's because you remove a niece. You remove a niece and then she just dates another woman, right? So it's just like, it's fascinating to hear. I mean, and we're also talking about, you know, I'm not really sure what year we're talking about, but we, we do sound like we're talking about a time where, you know, obviously there was a lot more taboo associated with being LGBTQIA. And, you know, when I listen to the story, I think to myself, there's so many queer people today who can't imagine being in this situation, right? Who can't imagine being in a situation where like people's moms <laughs> are writing letters to your mom and like trying to blow things up. <laughs> for most of us these days, we can get to a place of a little bit of complacency and, and taking for granted what we have because 
this there was a time when this was very much a thing for many people. Yeah, totally normal. And also, you know, on the flip side, it's like the school had recently changed its policy to not kick out gay students. Well, that means that there was a policy in place that would have actually kicked her out had it not been changed. The amount of frustration and rage I had at this mother for writing a letter. And, you know, I understand that probably as a mom, this was a time, it's all in context of the time that it was a time when there were way more homophobic attitudes and probably the mother's behavior was a reflection of the time that they were in where you would try to do something like this. And, you know, I guess in some deeply misguided effort to try to help your daughter, your child, but it's still really infuriating just to think that you would totally derail your kid's own academic career because of something like this. Like it's really just beyond the pale to think that you would reach out to the university to do something like this. It's hard to believe. And I think also when you think about her mom, uh, the girlfriend's mom, it sounds so much like kind of what you were saying that it was more about the reflection, right? It was more about like, this is a reflection on our family. This is taboo. Like you are bringing this bad name, this thing to our family. This wasn't about her daughter. It was about how it looked to the family in, in many cases. And, you know, it's interesting. Like I, feel, I think about some of the other stories we've covered where people are coming out as trans and parents dealing with a child who's transitioning. And there's something that they are trying to express. There's something that they need to have come out of them. And the focus is on the child, right? In this situation, you see a focus on how does this look to everyone else, right? The focus is not on Anise's girlfriend or niece. It's like everyone else thinks this is bad, right? This is, we're going to receive judgment from everyone else. So there's no focus on the, the individual itself. And I think that's, that's always going to be a recipe for disaster. Oh yeah, absolutely. The one thing I would end on is that you know, uh, it's amazing to to consider the beginnings of these stories that both Representative Torres and Mayor Parker, the beginnings of their stories are really characterized by this idea of hiding who you are and not seeing people who are like you. And then now to be able to do an episode about LGBTQ lawmakers, it's not even a singular one person. Every single election we have, basically, there is a historic number of LGBTQ plus people who are elected at all different levels of office. And it's really amazing to hear. It's still so exciting to hear about some of these people. One person that I wanted to highlight is Maury Turner, who is a non-binary identified official in the Oklahoma state legislature, who's also the first practicing Muslim elected to the Oklahoma state legislature, amazing. breaking a lot of barriers there. And just, I remember hearing about Representative Turner and how this was like the first non-binary person. And I think that, you know, it's always so hard when you have these like firsts for people because it puts so much pressure on that one person. But I also just think like, it's nice to see not just gay people represented, not just lesbian people represented, not just cis LGBTQ people represented. I feel like we're starting to see an even more full representation of the kinds of LGBTQ plus people who are in the government now. And I think that's really important. You know, I, I was looking uh, up some numbers and it looked like as of 2021, there are 23 states that have at least one transgender elected official. And now a lot of those officials are trans women. And, you know, so that's great. We love it. We want to see that. We want to see even more. We want to see some trans men out there too. So I would love to see, like you said, a little boost from some of the other fractions we have in our community, but it's nice to see that we have a bump somewhere. One of the reasons why I feel like it is so critical to have LGBTQ plus people elected across all different offices is that 
From this year, this past year, I should say, we saw a historical number of anti-trans bills introduced at the state level. These bills are introduced by lawmakers in the various chambers in these state governments. These laws get supported by various PTA organizations. I mean, these are all forms of government and people that you're electing as your officials. And I feel like it is so critical to have LGBTQ plus people in these positions running for office and also to really challenge a lot of these really bigoted lawmakers as well by being like, I'm your freaking colleague here. And so I just think it's so important to have people who know what it's like making the rules and, and making change for the rest of us. Yeah. And I also, I would go even further about what you said, like, I'm your freaking colleague. So you're putting a human face to this issue so that it just, you're not so removed from it, right? Like this, these these other elected officials have to deal with, there's a person behind what you're doing right now. Like you're, there's a person that an actual human is going to be affected by this. So you need to know that. And it looks like me. <laughs> Driftwood Podcast is hosted by Phil, a.k.a. Corinne and Alex Berg, and is produced by Andy Egan Thorpe. It's recorded as a program of I'm From Driftwood, the LGBTQAI plus story archive. Its mission is to send a life-saving message to queer and trans people everywhere. You are not alone. I'm From Driftwood's founder and executive director is Nathan Mansky. Its program director is Damian Middlefeld. Our score is provided by Elevate Audio. The stories you heard today are available in their entirety, plus thousands more at imfromdriftwood.org. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Or subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Additional funding is provided by the Humanities New York Sharp Grant with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. Thanks for listening, y'all.